good Friday to you. Um, just jump right in. As I've studied what happened in the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, there's always this one little story, one little event or detail that's always kind of stuck out to me and more so confused me because I just never quite understood what it was and why it was there no matter how many times I look at it. And it's in, in uh, Mark chapter 15, verse 39. We'll read it a little later. It's basically right as Jesus dies and breathes his last breath, there's a Roman centurion at the bottom, at the foot of the cross, that looks up at him and cries, truly, this man was the son of God. Now you have to think about it for a second, because this man, a Roman soldier, the enemy of Jesus, the enemy of the Jews, what would make this man, and this man, by the way, you have to understand, was given the task to make sure that Jesus was good and dead. It was his job to make sure Jesus didn't make it out alive out of the cross. He had to see it himself personally that Jesus was going to be good and dead for everybody. And yet somehow this man declares that the man he just killed is the son of God. And what makes it more confusing for me, at least when I look at it, is that the very first verse of Mark, the very first seven or eight words, begins like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's basically Mark's title to his entire book. And when he writes that, what he's trying to tell you is that the entire book of Mark is supposed to prove to you that Jesus is the Son of God. Which means his aim, his purpose, is to tell you that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And yet this Roman centurion... Right after he's killed Jesus, declares that Jesus is the Son of God. Like, what is going on? And then one step further, what makes this even more remarkable is that when you study the book of Mark, you find out that this Roman centurion is the only human being in the entire book of Mark to recognize and call Jesus the Son of God. No one else got it. None of the disciples, none of the people that were with him, none of the Jewish leaders, none, no one, not a single human soul understood that Jesus was the Son of God. But yet somehow this man, a Roman soldier, a killer at heart in many ways, puts it all together. And notice I've said so far that he's the only human being to declare this because indeed other people have in Mark 1, Mark 5, and Mark 9, which we'll look at in a second, non-human figures, God himself, the Father, and a demon, they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. In Mark 1, 11, a voice came out of the heavens, you are my beloved son. It's when Jesus is getting baptized. Right, God the Father declares to Jesus, you're my son. Cool, get it. In Mark 5, 7, when Jesus meets the, de uh, the demoniac, right, called Legion, right, and he sends them all out of the, into the pigs, that demon, when he says, uh, meets God, he goes, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, son of the most high God, he gets who Jesus is. And of course, in 9, 7, when Jesus is transfigured, at the end, God says to him, this is my beloved son, listen to him. Jesus' identity as the Son of God, which to Mark is the thing for him, is somehow only acknowledged by a demon who would know these things, by his own father who of course would know these things, and this random Roman centurion who literally moments before just killed him. So I always wonder, what is going on? What does it mean? And many people have debated whether this means that the Roman centurion was a Christian, whether he received salvation or not. For me, the more and more I read the text and the more I understand it, I think he is. There's no real sure, absolute 100% way to tell because you don't hear anything about this soldier afterwards. But 
I believe he is. And I think what we find in this little section is a really big deal because you have to remember who this guy is and what this means. The fact that he's a Roman soldier means that he was tasked for executing Jesus from the beginning. And based on certain things, I think we can assume that this isn't the first crucifixion that this Roman soldier had to oversee. He's probably overseen hundreds, which means he's probably nailed or seen people hundreds of times nailed to a cross, which means most likely that he's a battle-tested soldier, which means killing is his game, and he's really good at it. Which means, of course, the most likely death means nothing to him. Actually, he might enjoy killing a stupid Jew here or there. And it's most likely that he's been with Jesus from the moment Pontius Pilate said, this man, crucify him, and he sends him off. I googled the Passion of Christ scene in which Jesus gets, uh, you know, whipped and scourged. And the Roman soldiers in that scene, I don't know if it's absolutely 100% correct, but I think it is, they rather enjoy themselves beating the literal crap out of Jesus. And in that movie, at the crucifixion scene, the same soldiers who were there beating him are at the scene when he dies. This guy is the guy most likely either giving the orders to swing the whip or like I would imagine, he probably took a couple swings, if not many, himself. Now what I'm suggesting is that this man's heart didn't like slowly melt over time as he saw Jesus. Oh, poor Jesus. Okay, fine, you're the son of God, I get it. No, 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 I don't think that's what happened. Because I think he mocked, I think he enjoyed mocking Jesus. I think he enjoyed beating the crap out of him. I think he enjoyed nailing him to the cross. I think he enjoyed the humiliation that he was facing. I think he enjoyed spitting on his face. And yet somehow, the moment after Jesus breathes his last, the centurion sees Jesus on the cross, breathing his last, and then he declares almost immediately, truly, this man was the son of God. Which, of course, if you take the meaning of it, you have to understand, if this man can recognize and be saved that Jesus is the Son of God, who in the world cannot? Let that sink in for a second. If this man can be saved by the grace of God on the cross, then who in the world is possibly ineligible? Now, as I pondered this scene again and again and again, two big questions jumped out at me that I think we're going to have to address tonight. And the two questions is this. What in the world is going on? Because I still, like, at the beginning, I didn't get it. Just baffled me. It, it's, it's the mortal enemy declaring that he's the son of God when everyone else didn't get it the entire way through the entire story. What's going on? And then second, what does it mean for us? How does this change who we are, how we are, and what the cross means? So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 15. It'll be on the screen for you. We're going to read from verse 30, uh, 33 to verse 39. Mark chapter 15, verse 33 through 39. So when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And as the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which translated means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
And when some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he's calling for Elisha. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way Jesus breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was a son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as I studied the text, something jumped out at me, a word. I discovered it. I was like, ooh, what is this? And I discovered it. It was 15, chapter 15, verse 39. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him saw the way he breathed this last, he said, truly, this was a son of God. The reason behind the centurion's conversion or his proclamation, according to Mark, is that the way Jesus died, the manner in which Jesus died, and more specifically, the manner in which Jesus breathed his last, a.k.a. what Jesus said before he died, was the key. And so then I go, okay, well, if that's the key, then what did he say? And I looked a little bit further up in verse 34, and this is what it says. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then a little later in verse 37, it says, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his life. Last. And notice if you looked on the slides, I highlighted the word voice and cry for you because of the same word in Greek. It's the Greek word phone. Literally, it's where we get the word phone and phonetics, right? It's sound. Something about Jesus' phone or his voice or his cry was at the center of what's going on with this Roman centurion. In other words, something about what Jesus said and also therefore what he did not say, right, what he said and what he didn't say seems to be the reason why he was so sure that Jesus was the son of God and was converted from a hateful Roman soldier into perhaps maybe the first ever Christian living on the earth. And so me, being the nerd that I am, as soon as I discovered this, I did two things. The first thing I did was I traced the use of this word all throughout the book of Mark. I pulled out my little dictionary thing that I have, and then I popped this word in, and it populates all the different times it's used, okay? And then, after I did that, then I also then realized, okay, I need to look at what Jesus said and didn't say. So then I traced all the things that Jesus said or didn't say in the last 24 hours of his life, basically from the Passover feast all the way until he was crucified and breathed his last. And then I just went for it. And what I found was stunning. Let's just go through it. First, the use of this word phone. Bear with me. I'm going to get really nerdy for a second, okay? Every single time that this word phone is used in the book of Mark, it was used to declare someone's identity. It was used to declare someone's name or identity. And most interestingly, it's used in Mark to declare Jesus' identity in Mark 1, Mark 5, and Mark 9. Which is the only place, if you remember from the very beginning, where Jesus is declared the Son of God. Let me go over it with you. In verse 1, 3, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord. That voice, the phone. Mark 1, 11, and a phone, a voice came out of the heaven. God's phone, you are my beloved son. Mark 5, 7, when the demoniac is shouting with a loud phone, with a loud voice, what business do we have with each other? Jesus, Son of the Most High God. In Mark 9, 7, a voice comes out of the clouds. A phone comes out of the clouds. This, my beloved son, listen to him. And the next time and the only time it's used after that is here in Mark 15 when Jesus cries out to his father, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, and then he utters his last 
phone cry, which means that whenever this word is used, Mark is trying to tell us that we're supposed to learn that Jesus is the Son of God. Which is why I believe the Roman centurion's cry is authentic, that he indeed understands that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, again, real nerdy, and then after I saw that, I was like, oh my goodness, this is like the coolest thing ever. So then I got real excited, and I, got, I was like jumping up and down in my seat. I'm like, okay, okay, gotta do this. So then I went back, and then I started tracing the last 24 hours of Jesus' life, and then figured out what he said and what he didn't say, or how he used his phone, or his voice, if you will. And then I remembered all of a sudden in my mind, a scene popped up, a scene that we talked about before, the scene in the Garden of Gethsemane, which kind of started the whole crucifixion journey, right? Right after the supper, he goes in the garden, he starts to pray. And so I'm going to read that section for you in Mark 14, 32 through 36. It should be on the screen. Mark 14, 32, 36. I'm going to read it real quick. They came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, Jesus, sit here until I've prayed. And he took with him Peter, James, and John. He began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. And he went a little beyond them and fell to the ground and began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Now, I'm sure you know, throughout the history of the world, many people have died for their beliefs. For Christians, it's called martyrdom. If you die for your belief as a Christian, you're called a martyr. People have died for their allegiances, the side that they fight on and the battle things, all those kind of things. You've, if you've seen a war movie of any kind, you've seen this many, many times. They'd rather die for their country or for their land than indeed give and be dishonorable to their country. And if you watch all the movies and any of these types of movies, one thing that you notice is the people who die for their country, they do it very honorably. Have you noticed? Right? That interesting without exception, right, that the ones who are notable to be written about or filmed about or put into an art of some kind, they all die very bravely or they die like full of like courage and hate, right? They either go, go ahead, I'm good, kill me, it don't matter. Or they do it in a fashion, they're like, danger? Ha, I laugh, I laugh, 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 what is that? I laugh in the face of danger. That's kind of how everyone's depicted. If you die like a coward, no one cares to know, right? And interestingly, in Jewish history, it's kind of the same thing. Many martyrs, people who die for their faith, like being thrown to wild animals. Some people have been cut into pieces, literal pieces, like you're like a chicken or something, like cut into pieces, burned at the stake. All these people that are written about and, and heard about, they all die very honorably, full of courage, bravery, saying, you know what? You can't touch me. Ain't nothing you gonna do really matters, so go ahead, do whatever you want. But Jesus, here in the scene we just read in the Garden of Gethsemane, is painted drastically differently than all the others. Jesus, knowing his death is going to come, begins to plead and beg to his father, Father, if there's just a way, is there some way you can take this cup from me? Is there any other way that we can do this? Can I somehow be let off this hook? 1433, it says, he began to be very distressed and troubled. Very distressed in Greek means astonished, a.k.a. overcome with horror. This is a scene, if you remember, where Jesus sweats blood. He's so stressed out. 
And he says it himself in verse 34, I'm grieved to the point of death. And I read this and I thought, man, this is super interesting because all the way up until this point, if you, if you follow Jesus' life, he's been literally unshakable unflappable, cool as the other side of the pillow. He's always one step ahead of everybody else. He's dictating the terms. He does what he wants, how he wants, when he wants. Nothing ever fazed Jesus. But all of a sudden, in one moment, everything changed. Jesus was literally shook. Apparently, if you study the word troubled, that Jesus says he's troubled, it's the kind of emotion, right, and sorry for the graphic nature of this, but it's kind of the emotion where if you were to be walking down the street and you turned a street corner or you walked into the front door of your house and you saw your mom or your dad or your brother or your wife mutilated on the kitchen counter just sitting there lying in a pool of blood, that emotion, troubled, is what Jesus felt in the Garden of Gethsemane. This intense emotion, interestingly, is the only time this emotion is described in even church history. Biblical characters. Even Peter dies better than Jesus. Did you know that? Peter gets hung upside down on the cross, and he dies better than Jesus. So it it made me wonder, like, what in the world is going on? Because whatever happened, something happened in which Jesus went from unflappable and unshakable to completely shook. And if you think it's because, oh, of course, I mean, he's going to die soon. But it's not that. He'd been talking about the fact that he was going to die, like, forever. And death and the cross was always the plan. He had always been saying, my hour has not yet come. The hour meant the cross. He always knew that he was going to go there, so it can't be it. Then you got to wonder, then, if it's not just death, then what is it? What makes him say, all things are possible for you, God. Remove this cup from me. And then, of course, in my nerdism, I go, wait, 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 wait. That word, the cup, that means something. So I then looked into that. And the word, the cup, throughout Scripture, is the word symbolizing God's wrath on human injustice and evil. Prophets like Ezekiel and Isaiah have talked about it from the very beginning. So then you have to and wonder about what Jesus is thinking. So I maybe kind of audaciously kind of, you know, maybe I shouldn't have done so. But I try to get into the psyche of Jesus a little bit here. So then I thought about what Jesus is like and who he's been. Jesus is the one human being slash God, one person, let's just say, from the beginning of all time who's never, ever, 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 ever known anything but love, perfection, joy, and peace. That every time Jesus turned to his heavenly father, all he ever got was love and joy. Proud, just, 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 just hug of overwhelming affection. Every single time he turned to his father, he knew that what he would get was this overwhelming, unadulterated, just extravagant love that his father would give to him. But he knew in the garden in this moment, knowing that the cup, a.k.a. the cross, was coming, he knew that when he turned to his father in this moment, his father was going to say, uh-uh, and turn his back and say, you die. I don't know you. shook him to the core because he didn't know what that was like. He had no way of fathoming what that was like to get God's wrath 
the denial, to be forsaken. And you have to understand, Jesus smarter than us. He knows that because God is the source of life, God is the source of all love and all light, to be turned away from God is to be completely without life and love and light, to be in total darkness, total separation, total isolation, total loneliness. And this isolation and darkness, it totally discombobulated Jesus, and it just threw him to the highest disorientation degree, and he could not handle it. God, if you can do something, do it so I don't have to go through this. Now, when we talk about Good Friday at times like this, most sensible people in the world will go, then why does the cross even exist? Like, y'all Christians are stupid. Why do you have to have love like that? I mean, I get tough love, but I mean, that's just a little senseless, isn't it? Like, that's, like, that's way beyond tough love. That ain't even tough love. That's just stupid love, isn't it? Like, it's crude, it's barbaric, like, it's senseless, right? And maybe you felt that way before. That the cross is kind of this unnecessary, overstepping thing that you don't quite have to have. God can prove that he loves you in some other way, maybe. But the more you look at love and you understand God, you understand that as Tim Keller says, he's correct in every way when he says it. He says, if you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. Now think about it for a second. Loving people, they can get angry. Not despite their love, but because of their love. In fact, actually, loving people have to get angry if they are indeed truly loving. And more, the more you deeply and closely love someone, the angrier you will get. For example, if you're a dog owner or a pet owner in here, and you hear about someone else's dog or cat dying, your heart breaks, does it not? For all the dog lovers in here. But my lovely wife, who I love to death, wouldn't give a you-know-what about your dog dying because she don't care about dogs. She has no, she, dogs to her are filthy, smelly things that shed all over the place and make your house dirty. She get, sorry, if you have a dog, I, I, I apologize for her on her behalf. She did not care about your dog, okay? But imagine, right, that it's not someone else's dog, but it's your dog who gets run over and dies. You're not just heartbroken. You're literally torn to pieces, isn't it? You're angry. You're frustrated. All these things, right? And imagine then taking the next step that your dog died because of some malpractice or some abuse or purposeful harm. Someone kidnapped or dog-napped your dog and then tortured your dog and then killed it in cold blood. You would be pissed off to the highest degree, wouldn't you? Now imagine that this scenario didn't involve a pet but a family member. Your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, or just pick the person you love the most in the world. I guarantee your heart would be boiling up that you'd want to say to the killer, if I ever find you, I will murder you. And where does that anger come from, right? Everyone can, I think you understand, right? Where does that anger come from? It comes from your love. Because you have this sense of love and justice, and they're connected. They're activated together, not in opposition to one another. So if you see people being hurt or hurting themselves, people destroying others or destroying themselves, you most likely will get angry. And if you care about the person, you will definitely get angry. It's in your love. You cannot love without getting angry. And if you don't get angry, like my wife would not care about your dog, it's because you simply do not care. You don't give a crap. That's why you don't get angry. Because you're either, well, 
too self-absorbed or too cynical or too indifferent or too hardened and jaded, whatever it is. But if you love, you have to be angry because we live in a world where injustice is everywhere. So of course then God, the greatest lover of all, love himself we call him, has to get angry, must have wrath towards the evil and everything and anything that hurts his creation, his beloved people. If he isn't, then he's not God and he's worthless to us. God loves everything he made, doesn't he? And whatever destroys the things that he loves and has created, it pisses him off. Sorry, the French. It angers him. And you have to remember that God's capacity for love and anger is so much greater than yours. If someone ruined one of your beloved things or killed one of your beloved things, how angry you would be, multiply that by an infinity, and that's how God must feel. Because he sees and knows everything bigger than we know and we see it. So while it makes sense for us to want a loving God and not a wrathful God, a peaceful God and not a hateful God in some ways, if God is a loving God, he has to be angry at evil. And most important, he has to be angry to do something about it. Because if you're mad and you don't do nothing, what's the point? And this is where the cup, the cross, wrath comes in. You see, it has to cost God something to love you and I. Because all love is that way. Imagine two gods, put them side by side. On one hand, there's a God who loves you, but it don't cost him nothing to love you. That when you're hurting, he just goes, poof. You're hurting, Toby, poof, make it go away. You're hurting, poof, poof, make it go away. I love you. I love you. I love you. You know I love you? You know I love you, right? Now imagine that God and compare and contrast to him, the God of our Bible, our scripture, who says that because he's so angry at your hurt and evil, he must go to the cross, absorb your debt, pay the ransom. Which one do you think actually loves you? Which one can you prove actually loves you? Without the cost, can you actually prove that the love is real? The people that say they love you in your life guarantee you the reason why you know for sure that they can and they do is because it's cost them something to love you. Without that, you are not sure for one hot second. You think maybe they love you, but you know, I'm not so sure. But our God pays the price. And not just a price, any price. And not just any price, the highest price to love you. And he pays such a price that the eternally unshakable, unflappable Jesus goes completely shook and starts to beg and to plead that what's going to happen to him that he's known about forever and ever will not happen to him because he cannot handle it. Because in that moment he sees the torment and the suffering and it starts and he cannot. But, as I looked at what he says and doesn't say, he starts off by pleading to his God, God, if you can, take this cup from me. I don't want to handle it. If there's some way to do so. But then he says, not my will, but your will. And from that moment on, if you really look, mouth almost gets zipped shut where he says, barely. 
And particularly from the moment he gets put on trial by Pontius Pilate, and they put him up there, and Pontius goes, what have you done? What is wrong with you? Why do all these people want to kill you? Are you really the son of God? He basically says not a word, maybe one total. As they hurl insults at him, as they do all these things to him, he says not a word. And unlike all the other criminals who kick and shout, who try to take swings right back, I think if you could interview the Roman centurion, he would tell you that anybody who he's crucified fights tooth and nail to make sure that at least, if anything, he can get one swing in for that son of a, you know what, I would just pay you back because of all the crap you're doing to me. They'll try with everything they've got to at least make sure that they're not, that they're not some coward, that they're not going to go out like that. Yeah, you can kill me, but you ain't going to take my spirit type of hustle. But Jesus, not a word. They hurled insults at him, profanities at him, and not a word. And see, if you're another criminal and you go at the centurion and other people that are killing you, guess what it does? It makes the centurion more mad, doesn't it? It gets him even more excited about the things that he's doing. Oh, are you going to come at me? Oh, are you going to say those things? Oh, yeah, I'm going to get you good. It makes him swing harder. It makes him go at it even more with more fervency and more fervor, doesn't it? And the Roman centurion, you got to understand, he knows better than anybody else that when death comes at your door and it comes knocking, then anxiety and fear. What starts out as bravery, cockiness, pride, turns into fear, anxiety, trembling, that you don't know what to do with yourself. And yet he somehow saw that Jesus, through it all, said not a word. Which I think... All sorts of weird to Jesus throughout the whole, I mean, to the centurion. But he's got a task to do. His job is to kill the man, so he's going to see and make sure that this man is killed. Through the nails, nothing. That's why Isaiah says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep is silent before its shearers, he did not open his mouth. Jesus said nothing throughout the entire thing. He was silent like a lamb taken to the shearers. He said nothing the entire time. Every single time they whipped him, he said nothing. Every single time they hurled insults at him, he said nothing. Every time they spit in his face and called him a whatever, he said nothing until, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. He did not say a word until, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Until truly I say to you, you shall be with me in paradise. Until he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit until he utters, it is finished. And by this time, by the time he utters his last cry, his last phone, it is finished. All the while, withstanding everything, saying nothing, the centurion, I think, saw that Jesus was not your normal rabbi. And maybe just as Pilate understood that Jesus did nothing to deserve what he was getting, and the centurion saw without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus did not do any of the things people said that he did. He did not deserve any of the stuff that was happening to him. But I think what stuck out to him was the stuff that Jesus said. That he chose to be silent throughout the majority of the process. And when it was time, he opened his mouth. And I think when he opened his mouth, he said a couple things that spoke to him. That took his attention. That made him think. 
And I think the three things spoke like this to the centurion, and they're these. First, he recognized that when Jesus speaks on the cross, he speaks to his Father and only to his Father. Jesus could have been frustrated at the whole thing. Jesus could have done anything he wanted to if he's the Son of God. But the entire time, he turned to his father and nobody else. Throughout his suffering, he gazed upon his father. Not on the soldiers, not on Pilate, not on the pain, but on his father. See, you see, the reason why Jesus was so shook wasn't that he was afraid of death. He was afraid of being forsaken, of losing the love of his father. What kills Jesus isn't the pain. It is the loss of blood. It isn't the hurt. It isn't the scars. What kills the people What kills Jesus isn't the anger of the people. What kills Jesus is love. The lack of love his father was going to give to him. Why? So that the father could love you and me. The love that Jesus has for his father And the love his father has for his people. That is what kills him. Which is why he says, yet not my will, but your will be done. And the Roman centurion had never seen anybody like him. And the second thing I think the Roman soldier sees is that Jesus obeys and loves. Because of Jesus and his love for his father, he obeys and trusts his father, doesn't he? That through the cross, that Jesus then, he loves us all the way through it. He loves us. That's why he says, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. Throughout the entire thing, to the very last moment, Jesus is loving his people. Because his Father loves his people. That's why in Philippians, or in, sorry, Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him. Christ endures the cross. And the third thing that the Roman centurion saw in Jesus' death is that Jesus proves once and for all that he is indeed the Son of God. I find it interesting that when Jesus breathes his last, one of the things that he's recorded is saying is that he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And then he says it is finished and then done. Which then means that Jesus didn't die. He gave up his life. And there's a critical difference between the two, I hope you realize. There's an interesting passage a few verses later in 1544, where Mark tells us that Pilate wondered if Jesus had already died by this time. Joseph of Arimathea, we'll talk about it on Sunday a little bit, he goes and he asks uh, Pilate if he can take Jesus' body down from the cross. Right? So I can bury him. Sounds like a normal thing to do. But then Pilate has this interesting reaction. He goes, wait, wait, wait. I mean, yeah, you can do so, but pretty sure he ain't dead yet. So then he has to get the Roman centurion, maybe even the one that declares that Jesus is the Son of God, to go make sure that Jesus is indeed dead. And now you're like, oh, that's just a random detail. It doesn't really matter. But indeed, it does matter. The reason why Pilate asks if indeed Jesus is dead, because that crucifixion, the cross was supposed to take hours upon hours. Jesus died, I think, in somewhat about six hours or so. But the crucifixion was supposed to take 14 to 16 to 20 to 24, a long time. Pilate was surprised that somebody was asking for his body because he's like, no, 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 the, the man ain't dead yet. Like, he's not that weak. 
I mean, like, yeah, we, we, we beat the crap out of him, but he ain't that weak. Which is all to say Jesus shouldn't have died that quickly. And it's because Jesus didn't die. He gave up his life. He let his life go. It's why in John 10 it says, I lay my life so that I can take it up again. No one can take my life away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative, he says. I have the authority to lay my life down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Jesus freely gives up his life because it's time to go. It's his way of saying, you don't have any hold on me. All the stuff you did, that doesn't kill me. All the ripping, that doesn't kill me. The blood loss, that doesn't kill me. It's why when they pierce his side, blood and water flows out. He's not running off the same stuff that we are. But he dies because he gives up his life. He breathes his last. He knows, I believe, this is going to be my last breath. And he cries out, it is finished. God, I've done the thing you've sent me to do. And when he does so, this is what the centurion saw. It says that the centurion was standing opposite in front of Jesus, literally opposite him. To the point where I think he can see Jesus' eyes as this is happening. And Jesus breathes his last, utters, it is finished, and then he lets it go. And in all of this, the Roman centurion realized, wait a minute. That man has power even over death that he can dictate when he dies. Truly, this man was the son of God. I ain't never seen none like him. And then he saw Jesus' power his love, his spirit. And it melted all the hardness of his love. 30, 35, 40 years of hardened centurion life. Blood after blood, but the blood of the king washed it all away. The centurion realized Jesus' death was unlike any other. He had seen many deaths, countless maybe even, but this one was different. That this death was not cold. This death was not hard. This death was not angry. This death was not depressing. This death was beautiful, tender, loving. And through it all, all of the darkness, all of the hardness, all of the pain into this centurion's life, flooded with light and love and life. Truly, this man was the son of God. Glory be to his name. That's the voice that's crying out to you. That's the voice that dies for you, that loves you. It's why we sing. It's why we worship. It's why we come to this place. Because there's no love like it. There's no one like him. Brothers and sisters, do you hear the voice of love calling out to you? Father, forgive them, 
They know not what they do. Indeed, my beloved children, you will be with me in paradise. God, why do you forsake me? Turn your back on me. Oh, yeah, I know why. So that you can turn your face upon your beloved children. This Roman centurion. And receive the life that only you can give to them when you turn your back on me. Father, your will, not mine, be done. I hope this love floods into your life. Completely overtakes you. That this sweet, small voice, this phone of God, penetrate the deepest and darkest corners of your soul and you would hear it and you would feel it melt away all those gloves hold you and keep you to know that you are the beloved of our Lord Jesus Christ his blood washing you clean so that in three days on Sunday morning you will get up and you'll realize wait that man, Jesus, kicked the door down of death and I can see it. So will you go meet him this day? Will you go meet him when we go pray over with our adults, with your families, with your parents, for many of you? And as we sing one last song, I'm going to invite the ONJ and the praise team, maybe one or two songs at the most. I pray that this love, this tenderness, this beauty of the cross for it is Good Friday and the cross is good. That you would know that Jesus is God, the Son of God, and he loves you all the way through, even to death. Let us pray. Lord God, I think we understand that oftentimes, no matter how many times we enter into this place, that much like the disciples and much like others, that oftentimes we don't get it. But your spirit willing, the blood of the cross, willing, help us to see. Maybe, God, what it takes is like the centurion for us to recognize that we're the ones at the foot of your cross piercing your side, hurling insults at you and saying we don't need you, that you are nothing to us, that you are not indeed the king for us to finally look into the eyes of love, to receive the tenderness of even your death and the love and the beauty of your death, that indeed we would then die to ourselves, take up our cross, follow you, and have life eternal. Help us in this moment and this time to do so. Your glory be seen. May we sing knowing that you are God and that we are yours. We thank you, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Join us as we respond. And then afterwards, we're going to quickly go over to the other side, kind of all together, and pray with our families.